Hello, my name is Chris White and welcome to the MMA 20 Years Ago podcast. We're going back in the time machine to September of 1996 for Volume 4 of this month's show, bringing you all your MMA coverage. Volume 1 of this month's show is your WCW episode reviewing Full Brawl. Volume 2 is covering WWF, looking at In Your House 10. And Volume 3 is, of course, your ECW edition. Well, as I say, we are here for Volume 4, covering Mixed Martial Arts. We're taking a look at UFC 11. Joining me for that, I have Bob Bamba. Bob, how you doing? Good afternoon, Chris. To steal a joke that you, uh, or to steal and modify a joke that you told me earlier, we are covering a show with no main event, and we only have two of us. So, uh, yes, but both us and the show is uh, one person short of a, uh, a full house this time. Yeah, unfortunately, we didn't schedule enough alternate bouts. Uh, ran out of uh, men before the final coverage. But, uh, no, uh, so should we uh, get straight into the news section of this month's show? Yes, we can, uh, although briefly I can uh, add a little interlude. Uh, we are now, as a podcast, on Patreon. Patreon, for those who don't know, is a service where, if you wish, you can uh, donate a small amount of money every month for uh, as a thank you for our podcast. There's absolutely no... You know, reason to do so we're not going to paywall any content or anything like that but if you'd like to say thanks you can do at patreon.com for slash wrestling 20 rs uh there is no minimum donation i think beyond a dollar but what we said is for five bucks a month uh we will give you quote unquote early access to podcasts basically where they're available rather than withholding them till the end of the month when all the shows are ready we'll make them available once they're edited so for five bucks a month you can get early access to our podcast at patreon.com for slash wrestling 20 yrs anyway plug over we will jump into the media corner a very quiet media corner this month for just generally a very quiet show actually um you know we have got the stuff that i'll come to regarding the uh, venue change but compared to the last two or three shows when we've dealt with that this was easily the least newsworthy uh coming off of the back of the last usc show number 10 uh that which was a late move sold out 4,300 seats uh in birmingham alabama or the tickets were very cheap but even so i think on late notice that's um that's quite good uh but however the byrick news was less positive the buyer was a 0.43 uh, around 95,000 buyers for a gross of $853,000 which represents quite a significant drop from a couple of years ago uh, or even last year actually when they were doing kind of two three hundred thousand like more pay-per-view buyers than uh, WWF and WCW so I think we're, we're really beginning to see uh, a combination of the negative media coverage and certainly even even at this stage in the game we're really beginning to see how much star power is affecting these buy rates um, but we can perhaps discuss that before we go into the show itself uh, venue change uh, let's say no drama no real petitioning this time there was simply a bill to legislate MMA in New York that didn't look like it was going to pass in time so they moved the show only took them 20 years in the end to pass the bill i suppose um fighters coming into the show don fry suffered a cheekbone a broken cheekbone at usc 10 so he was advised that he shouldn't partake in the show although he was on the show in the corner of scott ferrozo uh, ken sharrock was also present at the show and was being billed as an entrant in the second ultimate ultimate show in december feeling was that sharrock was never actually going to enter into another tournament i think he was so disappointed will be the word i may well use about his performance last time he gets down seven that he wants another shot at it um some news on other fighters um 
Seven, namely, uh, not mentioned a great deal in the show, given that he is still their Super Fight champion, um, in part because uh, he may be off to a rival promotion. See, I think this is December. Um, it's said that there are financial issues where the two are just too far apart. That one ends up turning out that who else only actually has one more match in the UFC, and even that isn't until 1999. And as for Oleg Taktorov, who, as we know, never actually fights in the UFC again, uh, they're still talking about him, but he's going to face Henzo Gracie uh, in a uh, show in November, uh, and not on the UFC show, obviously. As I say, uh, Taktorov never comes back, but they're still talking of Taktorov with the UFC. Uh, in terms of the card itself, not a massive amount of news going into the card um, other than uh, they kind of bracketed Jerry Berlander against Fabio Gurel. Uh, Chris, how are we pronouncing that? I think, I think they announced it, Jurgel. Jurgel. He's Brazilian, so uh, the, the jury's out on that one. Um, but they were set that match up as a two submission-based uh, wrestlers with uh, Jurgel, a big actually do incredibly well in this kind of show and they thought the idea was we'll put Abbott in the same half of the draw as those two Abbott wins his match and then he gets to face a submission specialist in the semi-final as the rat find out Abbott did win his match uh, but he got someone who I presume probably weighed more than the other two combined or pretty close anyway we'll come to that in a bit um the only other news really of note uh gloves and I think we've spoken about gloves before um just kind of the same but that even the fact that some guys that you perhaps wouldn't have initially wanted to take gloves uh guys like Dan Seven and Mark Coleman uh started wearing them basically just sort of mean to protect their hands and as we said before even though it actually isn't you know even though actually wearing gloves is capable of doing more damage to people because you can punch them more there was the perception that in the eyes of the courts and in the eyes of the media if the fighters are wearing gloves it might actually be seen as safer even though that kind of twisted logic um chris nothing major but thoughts on, on any of the above no the only thing i really uh, uh this is more of a question for you a hypothetical so the buy rate for this show ufc uh sorry the buy rate for ufc 10 is significantly down uh you said you've mentioned star power how much of that do you think as well has lingering effects from ufc 9 and as we covered and have discussed the uh now infamous bout between Shamrock and Seven. Do you think that would have drove off some MMA fans? Because UFC 10 was the return of that, that tournament, and it did have some star power in, in Dom Fry. And I mean, personally, like, like with hindsight, UFC 10 was my favorite show that we've covered on this podcast. So do you think the effects of that UFC 9 fight were felt in the buy rate of UFC 10, or is it? Um. Let, let me just look up what UFC 9 drew. Because I, I don't necessarily think you're wrong. I think it's just perhaps more of a question of... So they reckon, UFC 10, as we said, reckon was about 96,000 buys. UFC number 9, uh, headline, as we say, by 7, Shamrock, did 141,000. I mean, put it this way, it didn't help. Um, but, you know, when you compare the 141,000, as I click back through Wikipedia, to the estimated 300,000 buyers that they did in February, what was on February? Shamrock and Chemo, um, Don Fry was on that February card, as was Goodridge, people didn't know who Goodridge was, Varlins, uh, Varlins is, I don't know. You've seen as well. You might have seen a drop of buy rate. They took away the tournament for the first time. So, in bringing the tournament, I know they brought it back for UFC 10, but do you think that could have turned some people away 
just a series of. Well, didn't we? Did we north. have? Um, was it nine or ten that ran up against the big boxing match or was meant to? I can't remember which one was what. I think that was nine. Uh, it might. It may have been ten, and they had yeah. to move it later. Yeah, well, one of the two, the box fight, I think, ended up getting, uh, shows how well we can remember shows we recorded a few months ago. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I suspect it's a combination of a lot of facts. I don't think the seven shamrock thing helped, but I don't remember what the, 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 that USC show as a whole, let me bring up that card, uh, USC number nine in May. We had that, we had Mark Schultz and Gary Goodwich, which was really good. Um, um, we had that Don Fry Amuri Bitechi fight, which I think was is the best fight we've covered, or certainly one of the top three this year. Um, that was on the card. I remember that being a really good card, other than the main event. So I don't know. I I kind of just feel like you, you watched that. I, I don't think you'd have been bored enough by the main event to the extent where you'd go right. I'm definitely not buying the next one. Um, no. it, it, I, I think it helped, but I don't think it explains fifty thousand buys. There's a lot of other things going on that, that would contribute to that too. Uh, yeah, I mean, you look at this card, the card we're about to cover. Um, I might as well run through the card now while we do it. But yeah, I'll run through the card and then we can carry on. So the card was, um, we had in the alternates we had Scott Ferrozo defeating Sam Fulton by submission in one forty-five. Uh, Roberto Traven or Traven, I think he's Brazilian. So by Trevan, uh, defeated Dave Berry, who definitely isn't Brazilian, uh, by submission in 123. Uh, the main card itself, Mark Coleman defeated Julian Sanchez by submission in 45 seconds. Brian Johnson defeated Razor Nasri, uh, by TKO in 28 seconds. Tank Abbott defeated Sam Adkins in 2 minutes and 6 seconds. Jerry Bolana defeated Fabio Gurgel. Um, by Yanam's decision, uh, after 15 minutes, they couldn't get a result. Moving on to the semi-finals, Mark Coleman defeated Brian Johnson by submission in 2 minutes and 20 seconds. In the second semi-final, uh, because Jerry Bolander was unable to continue, Scott Ferrozo, one of the alternates, uh, jumped in uh, and defeated Tank Abbott by unanimous decision in 18 minutes. Now, here's where things get a bit interesting. Uh, Ferrozo was given it large out in the octagon after his victory, uh, and they had time, also, you know, talking about the finale. Uh, and then apparently he went backstage and he collapsed. Um, so he went off to hospital and the UFC didn't have a main event. Um, so they looked down the card and basically there's another alternate in uh, Roberto Traven, Traven, how we're going to pronounce it. Um, but apparently due to a hand injury that not everyone is sure how the legitimacy of, uh, Traven didn't want to compete in the final. Perhaps he was injured. Perhaps he didn't want to get his ass kicked by Mark Coleman, uh, given that Traven was a significantly lighter and smaller jiu-jitsu specialist. You maybe can't blame him. Um, but in amongst all that, they did apparently ask Tank Abbott if he wanted to compete. And Abbott said, well, I can, um, but only if you can't find anyone else. Um, so they went away, obviously tried to find someone else regardless. But in the meantime, they also thought, hang on, maybe it's not going to look a bit weird if Abbott gets into the final having lost. Um, and there was also the thought, as we discussed anyway, that Abbott didn't really have much gas anyway. Um, so it would have been a bit of a massacre. So the main event of this show is Mark Coleman defeating no one and winning the UFC uh, 11 championship. Um, Chris, I think we'll discuss their actions and their decisions after the semi-final when we get there. Um, but as I kind of filtered into it and to come back to your earlier question, you look down the card um, and there aren't many 
massive names in there. Mark Coleman is a big name, but remember at the time, as much as he'd won the previous show, that was his debut. And so this show was essentially being sold on the return of Tank Abbott. And one thing I think we are going to discuss in the early doors is as much as we say it as being sold on the return of Tank Abbott, it was kind of being presented as a tournament that was meant to get Coleman and Abbott in the final. Yeah, absolutely. It was, I mean, how this show ended, we will talk about it, as you say, at, at the end. But it's, it's hard to blame anyone, really. Like, it doesn't seem to be anyone at fault. They do have two alternate bouts. And then it's just unfortunate that on a show that was already lacking in, as you say, real legitimate MMA star power, that this is the time where the sort of sods law and the inevitable combine uh, and that you have too many injuries and it's that's the pitfall of the the tournament format and it, i mean it's hard to blame anyone for all of this but it doesn't make the viewing any better the fact that it's hard to pinpoint the blame um the lack of it, it really, did really need, the show as well didn't it yeah the, the, the effect on the show and the enjoyment of watching this show was huge it's probably the the least enjoyable UFC we've covered purely because of the, the, the anticlimactic sort of nature of how it panned out. I mean, I was looking forward to seeing Mark Coleman again and they really did sell it, as you say, in the build up with the, uh, of a potential Coleman versus Tank Abbott final, which we might have ended up having if Jerry Bolander hadn't pulled out due to a cut, maybe. Uh, they certainly set things up so it would, come that way and Abbott wasn't able to get it done and it, by no means did he come off on this show as that legitimate top level UFC star neither in the octagon or really with his promos he was quite reserved on this show yeah even beforehand um, I get a funny feeling he was not too displeased that he didn't have to face Coleman in the final uh, we'll come to that in a bit too um, but yeah even beforehand he was a bit subdued and then I think you know, not well to get ahead of ourselves. Given the way he lost, he was perhaps a bit subdued after the uh, after the fight as well. But yeah, I mean, it, you know, they, they do what they can. They're in a star. They're in a, at this stage in the game. Well, I'm 20 years on. They're in a star making business, and these tournament formats generally are better at making stars than individual matches. It's just that when you go in light, and they effectively went, as I say, you know, the opening promo of this show was Mark Coleman, Tank Abbott. Oh yeah, and six more guys. That was basically the opening video package. And when you go in with a show like that, and Tank Abbott is, well, he lost. I mean, you know, we, we talk about not only a final, it wasn't going to be Abbott and Ferozo anyway, Abbott and Coleman anyway. Um, but he didn't get the final he wanted, and more certainly he didn't get a final at all. Um, it's not ideal. It's just a weakness of the format. It, you know, it, it can go wrong, and I think it's just more a case of, you know, they almost kind of need more alternates, but to an extent, they almost kind of don't need the tournament format because then you don't have this problem. Yeah, I mean, the tournament format is great when it works, and it's great for making stars, like we saw with Mark Coleman. I know it was his debut, but coming up, that's like the hype around Coleman from even from a personal standpoint. After watching UFC 10, I'm excited for his fights at UFC 11, and like if you were going into this as a as a newcomer to MMA. His performances at UFC 10 would make you excited about him. But maybe, maybe it's karma for the tournament going so ridiculously well in UFC 8. 
Maybe. The, the David versus Goliath tournament that went as well as anyone possibly could have hoped, given that they ended up with a David and a Goliath in the final, and the David won, given some of the mismatches they'd set up. Maybe this is the, that this is payback, um, for this. Is this the only ever UFC show that doesn't have a main event? Is, is that right? Cause I don't know how much long the tournament part goes on for. I yeah, can't... I don't think, cause pretty soon they break it down into two separate tournaments with two different weight. They have the, the, two split weight divisions so I can't imagine you go without a main event because if, even, if the heavyweight, yeah. even if the heavyweight fighters pull out you've still got the main event of the the, the lighter I don't know how they what, what the weight categories were called but the the lighter fighters still compete for that championship at the end of the night so you've still got that closing I can't imagine you, you lost two both those fights on, on a given show so it surprised me if this wasn't the uh, only UFC event without a main event of any kind and like, like it just swings around about with the tournament format. It goes perfectly sometimes, like you said. We've seen it work well pretty much every time we've watched it up until now. And then today, well, well, well UFC 11, 20 years ago, not today. But uh, just yeah, this is this is what can go wrong, and everything that went wrong did. They had two alternate bouts. Both of them were injured or unable to compete, and uh, Regan Fire in the tournament was injured and unable to compete. And so, this is what happens when you get rid of the super fight as well. Um, you, yeah. you, you go down from two main events to one, and at least with the super fight, it's something, you know, I mean, all right, you're, you're hoping that 99 times out of 100 that if one guy can't make the final, you've at least got someone to bring in. Um, but at least with the super fight, you've got your other big main events. So that if the final's a bit of a mismatch or a bit of an odd match that's kind of an outlier, you've got a conclusion to the show. My other feeling, Ken Shamrock's there. Isn't the old wrestling thing that you always bring your gear? Like, <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I, you know, I mean, Shamrock would have been a bit of a nut to go in there completely cold. Don't get me wrong, but that that was my other thought. I, I wonder if they thought about it. Like Shamrock got, was there. Don Don Fry not fancy it after he. I mean, it was his man as well who pulled out of the final. Don Fry was his cornerman. After, did he not fancy avenging his UFC 10 loss to Coleman, stepping up and winning it in the final? I mean, I wonder wonder if they considered it. I mean, if they considered Tank Abbott, you've got to think they at least thought about the guys in the building. Oh, we'll talk about it in more depth, but my God, I would have gone with a fan rather than Tank Abbott in that final with how he looked towards the end of that semi-final. Shall we we start the show? We're basically (laughs) discussing it without actually doing it. (laughs) Yeah. I'll I'll, I'll formally hand it back to you. Um, Right. We've done the results. Yep, so we are live from Augusta, Georgia, and as Bob said, we have an eight-man tournament with UFC 10 champion Mark Coleman looking to become only the second man in UFC history to win back-to-back tournaments after Royce Gracie. So we open the show with a video package highlighting the fighters competing. Much of the hype and promotion around this is basically the potential Mark Coleman versus Tank Abbott fight in the finals. Uh, so we cut backstage, and we have Jeff Blacknick there with Mark Coleman. He asked Coleman what he gained from his experience at UFC 10 and if we'll see a difference in his style tonight. Coleman says he gained a lot of confidence at UFC 10, but is looking for more of the same. Blacknick points out that Coleman is no longer an unknown quantity to his opponents inside the octagon, and Coleman says that he anticipates because he is the champ, everyone will be shooting for him tonight. Blacknick talks up the possibility of that Coleman-Abbott final, and Coleman says that while Tank is a big man, he doesn't have the skill to hang with him on the mat, so he'll take him out just like he will anyone else. I mean, Coleman isn't the most charismatic 
He, he's no, very much does. He's talking he's in tough, He's a tough motherfucker, but he's not. Uh, he's not the best promo. He does. His, he does all of his talking in the cage, uh, which which is fine. But uh, this wasn't. This was fine. There was nothing wrong with this, really. We then cut to Don the Dragon Wilson, who is interviewing Tank Abbott. Tank says he is there to do a job, and we'll just have to wait to see what happens. He's billing himself tonight as a street fighter, rather than some made-up discipline like pick fighting. Wilson asks about his quarterfinal opponent, San Adkins, who is a former pro boxer, and whether Tank is prepared to go toe-to-toe with him. But Tank says he doesn't think so. And the promo kind of ends. This wasn't really vintage Tank Abbott. It wasn't the Tank Abbott of the last show, let's say that. No. Uh, okay, so Jeff Blatnick then runs down the rules for the show. We have a 15-minute time limit in the quarterfinals, a 15-minute time limit in the semis with a three-minute optional overtime, and a 20-minute time limit in the final. The rules of the octagon, as always, no biting, no algoging, and no fish hooking. Ways to win, RKO, submission, corner thrown in the towel, referee stoppage, or disqualification. The judging tonight will be based on striking, grappling, and aggressiveness. So, as Bob said, we had the two alternate bouts just before we get to the quarterfinals. Scott Ferrazzo, who we had seen before at UFC 8, he defeated Sam Fulton in 1 minute 45 seconds, and Roberto Trevon, making his MMA debut, defeated Dave Berry by submission. So let's jump straight into our quarterfinals, and we have Mark Coleman taking on Julian Sanchez. So I'll throw over to you, Bob, for a bit of background on both of these guys. We can indeed. Mark Coleman is a former NCAA champion and the winner of the USC 10 tournament, where he defeated Dong Fry in the final. 31-year-old weighs in at 250 pounds, which the commentators know is actually bigger than he was at USC 10 last time. His opponent, Julian Sanchez, seen here appearing in his one and only MMA fight, is 23 years old and his discipline is listed as A6, which both the commentary team and Google don't seem to know anything about. He stands in at 6 feet 3 inches tall and weighs in at 300 pounds. Google could find no information on that discipline. Uh, Don Wilson said that it was based on arm locks. So we don't really get a showcase of it here either. Blacknick says that Coleman might be the most ferocious fighter we have ever seen in the octagon, which after UFC 10 is pretty hard to disagree with. Um, and after his debut at UFC 10, there's no Bruce Buffer. We're back to Rich Goins, and he returns to give us our ring introductions. After that, Big John McCarthy gets us underway. Coleman gets a quick takedown, gets him to side mount, and lands some heavy right hands. Sanchez looks in trouble immediately and tries to cover up. But Coleman gets a side neck crank in and Sanchez taps after 45 seconds. That was short and sweet. Bob, thoughts on this opening fight? Yeah, not a lot to say. Um, you know, the only real note I put down is how the hell do you beat Mark Coleman? Um, not that Sanchez was necessarily the best guy who might have the chance. Um, but yeah, it was, it was kind of like this. And I suspect it would have been like this in the final as well. It was just going to be, if Coleman gets you to the ground, you ain't got a chance. He's got the size and the ground game. He's got the takedown game to get you down. Um, you know, Mark Coleman just, you know, I think the perception at this stage is that he's the most complete fighter they've got, uh, given his wrestling background. And you're doing kind of the reading up on this show, and the perception is, you know, his, his biggest potential foe would have been Ken Shamrock. And at this stage, you look at it and go, I just don't know how he beats him. Um, and Sanchez just never really had a chance once, it, once the takedown happened. No, uh, I mean, 
Sanchez, as you say, probably wasn't the uh, greatest caliber of opponent. and never fought again, so we don't really know too much about him. But we were told it was going to be a mismatch, and it, and it was probably as close to a squash as you're ever going to get in mixed martial arts, really. He was just... He is the best fighter we've seen so far. Um, we're yet to go back and review the, the earliest, the earliest of the UFC shows, but he he is the best. And I don't know that there's anyone we've seen who could beat him, really. Well, there is a I'm looking up his record, and, and and he wins at the next couple of shows, and then he loses his next three fights, and then he buggers off. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how that all yeah comes comes together, and who the who's the first guy to beat him? Uh, Boris Smith. No, so we haven't encountered him yet. No, so. beats, beats him for the UFC heavyweight title. Um, he has another fight in 98, another fight in 99. This is UFC. Um, he then does quite a bit in Pride, uh, which will we may well end up coming to in a few years' time. And then he returns to UFC um, in 2009 against Mauricio Shogun Hua. Um, God, we're going forward a bit, aren't we? Um, and then yeah, he's got two more fights. But yeah, it's that's going to be fascinating because right now you watch Mark Coleman and you're like, I I don't know what would beat him. Like I, I don't know what what body you would take to beat him. Like I think the perception was, if you had someone that was slightly bigger, um, that had the takedown defense. But takedown defense isn't really a thing at this stage, I don't think. I think you either you're either good at wrestling, in which case. You know, you, we haven't seen many wrestler-wrestler matches yet. We're either good at wrestling, in which case your takedown offense is your main skill. And in a lot of the cases, we'll see, unless you're facing a wrestler, you're not really being threatened by take, being taken down anyway. Um, but also, it's just not a skill that people typically have right now. And so you get a guy like Coleman, who has got a lot of the stuff going for him. He's just got to pick his spot. Um, yeah, it, it, you know... Um, he, he had a little bit more trouble against Johnson, but only a bit. But at the moment, it just felt like he was lining them up. Uh, the, the one fight I would have loved to have seen if I was a matchmaker at the time and, and could have put it together would have been, I imagine I'd know how it would turn out as well, but Coleman versus Gracie would have been interesting to me with Gracie sort of... His de- defence on the ground. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I mean, that that does... Like in your head, there's no way Coleman isn't getting it to the ground and probably is just pummeling away for the finish. But well, I, I suspect what's, a what's perhaps even what's perhaps probably slightly more likely would have been Coleman would have got it to the ground, Gracie would have defended on his back for 15 minutes, and Coleman would have won a decision. I think that's probably the most well, not most likely. Um, but you know, the theory was is that you know, the defense was impenetrable or close to it. Um, you know, we saw, or, you know, the shows you're going to go back and review, I think the Gracie Shamrock fight, we kind of saw that a show pre-judges, um, you know, Shamrock couldn't get the job done, but Shamrock probably would have been given that result. Um, and one of the reasons that the Gracie style didn't necessarily lend itself to UFC beyond the stage, that once they switched to time limits and judges, you know, it was, it's a style that's set up not to lose rather than necessarily to win. Um, I suspect either Coleman wins on the ground by TKO. I don't know if he'd have got a submission on Gracie, um, but I think I think a, a decision would have been most likely. Yeah, and, and as you say, that sort of style we see later on in the show um, not necessarily being the most effective within the UFC tournament format. So, well, uh, you think Gracie would have just grabbed onto the cage? Well, I, I just with the, <laughs> I mean, 
That's what that's what what one way he could have done it. I suppose if he was drawing uh, drawing influence from stuff that happened on this show. <laughs> so yeah, let's move on to the second quarter final, and we have Razor Nazri taking on Brian Johnston, Bob, with the tale of the tape. Yes, Razor Nazri is having his first and only MMA fight. He specialises in Greco-Roman wrestling. And the 27-year-old is the first person from Iran to compete in the UFC. He weighs in at 205 pounds. His opponent, Brian Johnson, wearing his signature American flag shorts, is a more familiar face having competed last time at UFC 10, losing to Don Fry in the semi-finals. The six foot four kickboxer enters the octagon with a one on one record and weighs in at 235 pounds. Right, let's get into the fight. Big John, uh, before the, uh, before we get going, uh, Johnston says that he is going to do anything that it takes to win. But, but um, these, these picture and pictures still aren't very good, are they? No, no. Uh, Big John gets things started and Nazri shoots in right away. But Johnson's able to block and lands a knee to the head. They clinch as both men scramble to get into a dominant position. Johnson lands a knee to the body and out of nowhere hits a huge slam, takes it to the ground. He quickly mounts, lands multiple headbutts and some hard right hands. Big John comes flying in to stop the fight after just 28 seconds. When I say he came flying in, I mean it. He absolutely launched himself at Johnston. And McCarthy seemed to be in a bit of a panic to stop the fight. And in launching himself in, he actually collided with Johnston's nose and busted him open. So Johnston stands up, begins bleeding from the nose, and it understandably looks pissed. Bob, he, he was he that. was fucked off after all that, wasn't he? He was uh, he was things <laughs> at, uh, at Big John. I mean, yeah, I think I think uh, McCarthy got in a bit more offense than uh, than Nasri did with that uh, shovel. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's you know, I, I suppose to an extent, you probably should probably don't have it a bit more often, given that, you know the referees are really trying to get in. And I suppose if you're a referee, and you're thinking these. You know, I don't mean testosterone in a PED form, but these testosterone filled guys are, you know, going for the kill. We've got to get in and make sure pretty decisively they know this is over. I'm actually probably a bit surprised this doesn't happen more often, but yeah, he, he proper took him out. Um, and uh, Johnson was perhaps quite likely a little bit pissed off. Um, but a very good performance, uh, from Johnston. Um, yeah, we talk about takedown defense. I suppose there was a little bit here as well, but a really nice throw. Um, and once he got in the mount, it, you know, it was just, it's just waiting for it to happen. I think you know, we talk about it a lot, but it's ground defense. Unless you're a Gracie or unless you're really, really good. And a lot of these guys aren't, um, because it's all very one disciplined guys. Unless you've got a guy who's used to being on his back, there's just not a lot going on. We'll see it a bit more in the fourth, fourth quarter final. Um, but if you've got a guy who's not particularly experienced on the ground, it is kind of just a matter of time. Yeah, uh, I agree. This was uh, a good showing from uh, Johnston. Uh, Nazaru is completely overwhelmed and he was viciously beaten. Some horrible headbutts and punches. You could actually hear post-fight, uh, Big John was apologising to Nazaru and, and some of his corner for not stopping it sooner. He said he, he had uh, he, he allowed one punch too many. He should have stopped it. So it's a little bit of insight into his mindset there. I think he thought he was a bit slow uh, on the stoppage. Uh, allowed a bit more damage than he should have. So when he did go to stop the fight, he just panicked and then launching himself in. Don't think of it, as you say, surprised it doesn't happen more, but I can't recall anything like this. He just threw himself at Johnston, probably broke his nose, just blood started pouring out. <laughs> it was probably the only damage he absorbed in the whole fight, really. Uh, 
but yeah, it was it was short and sweet. Um, all right, and uh, Johnston looked good. Um, just hope his nose is all right heading into the semi-finals. Really. So in our third quarter final, we have Tank Abbott taking on Sam Atkins. Bob, go to you for the fighter profile. Tank Abbott enters the octagon with a three and two record of the UFC, coming off of a loss to Dan Seven at the 1995 Ultimate Ultimate Tournament. The UFC six run-up has listed himself as a street fighter and is weighing in at 298. His opponent, Sam Atkins, enters with a 2-1 record with both of his victories coming in alternate bouts, most recently at UFC 10. Former professional boxer weighs in at £260. Uh, in the ring walks, it's probably fair to say that Tank Abbott is the most over UFC fighter we've seen up until this point. He is a real crowd favourite. During his walk to the cage, uh, the eagled eye amongst you will actually spot a very young Tito Ortiz in his entourage. Good spot. Them, Good. I didn't both, see that. No, no, both both of them hailing from the same area of California, I believe. So uh, yeah, uh, we'll, uh, surely will become a more familiar face down the years. Uh, the fight gets going. Uh, Atkins throws a big right, but Abbott avoids it, closes the distance, and gets a quick takedown. He lands some short left hands from side control and drive ad- drives Atkins back into the fence. Adkins grabs Tank's head to try and keep him close, but Tank is able to work, create some distance, and lands a few more strikes. Tank then forces Adkins into the fence, head first, pushes his forearm down into the throat. Adkins taps pretty quickly, and this fight lasted just two minutes and six seconds. Bob's thoughts on this pretty horrible-looking submission? Yeah, I mean, this kind of finish, um, I, I don't recall having ever seen it before, as in... Well, since I don't recall ever seeing it before, um, in terms of just a guy in the mount just basically pressing his forearms in someone's larynx. Um, but you know, if you can get away with it, you might as well, right? Um, and yeah, I, I just thought it was a case of once Abbott got the guy down, once Abbott got Adkins down, I was just so big. Like, I, you know, 40 pounds is a lot. Don't get me wrong, but you know, I think if Abbott had faced off against and had taken down Ferozo in the semi, and Ferozo outweighed him by about 50 pounds, I think Ferozo would have struggled to get Abbott off him either, even though he was bigger. Just Abbott's huge. Um, and it really was only a matter of time once Abbott was in the right spot. Uh, Adkins held on, but didn't have enough. Yeah, uh, the announcers uh, discussed how Tank looked a bit more uh, controlled than usual. And that seemed evident here. He looked like he was, uh, he didn't waste energy either. He was quite methodical and, he, and to get the job done in just, just over two minutes was pretty impressive. Um, he made, it was just short work. The finish was horrible. I mean, I don't think I've seen it either. And, uh, as well as the throat, uh, the, the forearm across the throat is driving his skull into the, the fence. Just the, the dent. I think we've seen that from Tank Abbott before, where he just, I think he tapped someone out with it once. He just drove someone in the Yeah, back he kind of bent, in, bent the neck battle or forward. Yeah. But yeah. I think he, he had like that going on as well as the forearm across the throat. And it's just horrible. Like, you're not, you're not, you're not getting out of that. So Atkins did well to, to tap so quickly, really. It was a pretty uh, brutal finish to a fairly short fight. So we move on to the last quarterfinal. It's Fabio Gurgel taking on Jerry Bolander. So, Bob, uh, over to you. 
Yeah, I like Gershel. We'll go with that. I think that's, that, that, that sounds like the most plausible pronunciation <laughs> of his name. Uh, Fabio Gershel making his UFC debut as the 1994 and 1995 Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu national has been awarded his black belt in 1989. 26-year-old weighs in at 200 pounds. His opponent, Joe Belanda, enters with a 1-1 record, coming in the UFC off the loss to Gary Gerrard at UFC 8. The 21-year-old submission fighter is training out of Ken Shamrock's lion's den and weighs in at 200 pounds. I think as well, just to kind of say, as I kind of mentioned earlier, just in terms of Gurgel, there was a big thought that he might go all the way in this tournament and, you know, the, the kind of the next coming of Gracie, essentially, this next big BJJ practitioner, um, and the thought that BJJ was almost impenetrable. Um, and yeah, as we, as we found out, not quite as impenetrable as we thought. Not necessarily, that's when you lost by decision, but, uh, over to you, Chris. Yeah, uh, we are told Gergio will shoot immediately and is a master of submissions. Both guys, as Bob said, weighing in at 200 pounds, so pretty interesting fight here. Belanda tells us he feels confident because he has prior experience in the UFC, whereas his opponent doesn't. Rich Goins runs through the formal introductions, and Big John gets us going. They clinch from the beginning, with Gergio driving, it, driving the action back towards the fence. Bolander lands a few short strikes to the body, but has to grab the cage to avoid being taken down. Both men try to manoeuvre for position and avoid takedown attempts from the other. Neither really has controlled their opponent for any amount of time. Momentum in the clinch is changing constantly. Bolander gets a trip at around the 92nd mark and finds himself in Gurgel's guard. He begins landing some hard but short left hands to the body. Gurgel kicks him away, but this distance allows Bolander to stand and spring back down, dropping a huge right hand. He then stands and kicks at Gurgel's legs, but this earns him a warning because he's wearing shoes. Big John steps in, stops the fight, has a massive go at Bolander, and then they reset the fight. Gurgel responds with a lazy body kick. Uh, sorry, Gurgel responds to a lazy body kick from Bolander with a powerful, stiff right, which immediately draws blood from Bolander's forehead. They clinch again. Bolander lands some short punches and knees to the body. Gurgel drives the clinch towards the fence and is able to get the takedown, but Bolander gets his neck and looks for a guillotine on the way down. Gurgel powers out. He works the path for guard. Gurgel manoeuvres into half guard and eventually is able to take full, might, full mount. As he does this, Bolander rolls him over and gets into top position, but finds himself again in Gurgel's guard. He lands some headbutts and begins to work the body with short punches, and the crowd starts chanting, USA. Gurgel's keeping Bolander close, but isn't looking for any submissions. As we pass the halfway mark, the announcers discuss how Gurgel was very upset about the 15-minute time limit and how he considered it far too short, with this not being the way a... BJJ practitioner would operate, preferring to lay there and waiting for a chance to arrive, taking as much time as necessary. Bolander drives Gurgel back into the cage, landing the occasional headbutt and punch to the body. Gurgel begins to drop his elbow down to block the body shots, so Bolander lands a a brutal knee to the tailbone, which just looks so horrible. (laughs) The action is a bit of a stalemate here, but Bolander is working just enough to stop Big John from standing the fight up. Gurgel eventually manages to push kick Bolander off, who stands before diving straight back down into the guard. Gurgel tries a triangle, but Bolander pulls right out of it, and we're back into the guard. 
Bolander continues to land the short punches to the body, and we reach the 15-minute time limit. We go to the judges. All three score in favour of Bolander. Bob, thoughts on this? Yeah, very interesting fight. You might look at 15 minutes of predominantly ground action and think, oh, I'm not sure I could take that, but there was enough going on. Um, and as I was last time, was it USC 8? Um, when Bo- I continue to be very impressed by Jerry Bolander. Um, for a guy who was 21 years old, who's not been doing it that long, against a guy who came in with a lot of, you know, not publicity, but a lot of expectation. Um, Bolana didn't look out of place at all. Um, and the key moment in the match was where, um, Bolander managed to roll out of, um, you know, roll out of, off his back into the, uh, you know, into the top position. Um, and yeah, very impressed. And, and Gazelle, you know, you, you know, as I spoke about earlier, like, you know, this is Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And, and, and when we say that, we kind of talk about guys that are very good defensively. And yeah, Bolander never looked like he was ever going to finish the fight. Um, but I have no qualms with the decision at all. Um, fact that the right guy won. Uh, an interesting little note about the shoes. Apparently they were looking at a soft side or soft-sided shoe that fighters could wear. Um, but they hadn't got one at this stage, so kicks were still illegal. If you were wearing them, if you were barefooted, you were able to kick. Yeah. Um, Although I'm, I must admit, kicks on the ground are illegal now, aren't they, I think? Like, yeah. If you're stood up... Is it to the head? Right, okay. Yeah. Uh, you, you could kick how he kicked, just at, at his legs. I think that, that'd be fine. Right. Um, yeah, no, this, this fight was... Okay, it wasn't the superb sort of submission so showcase you, you hoped for going in, but it didn't drag. Um, and even if it never did happen, there was always this sense that because of who the fighters were, something could happen. And that sort of tension kept you going throughout the 15 minutes. It, it was a fine little fight. Uh, as we discussed, the fact that Gergel didn't like the 15-minute time limit, it didn't suit his style. You take that all on board, but at the end of the day, there's a 15-minute time limit, and they're the rules. So, yeah, as you say, Bolander was absolutely the, the clear and correct winner of this. He was uh, the more dominant of the two fighters and in dominant positions for the majority of the fight. So, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't stellar, but it was by no means bad either, and the right guy won. So we move into the semi-finals and kick it off with what should be an excellent fight. We have Mark Coleman taking on Brian Johnston. Bob, over to you. Yes, very quickly, just to run you through the uh, the vital statistics. Mark Coleman enters this contest with a 4-0 and record, ranking at £250. His opponent, Brian Johnston, enters with a 2-1 and record. His only loss coming against Don Fry at USC 10. The man Mark Coleman would go on to defeat in the final. Johnston weighs in at £235. <laughs> For what it's worth, uh, Johnson's showing no sign of damage to his nose after his collision with Big John McCarthy earlier in the night. We get underway. Uh, both men circle tentatively to begin with. Johnson's keeping a low base to reduce the target Coleman has for takedowns. Johnson lands a few good leg kicks, which seem to hurt Coleman. I don't know if Coleman was just sort of... As the fight progressed, it seemed to me that Coleman may have been just selling his leg to entice Johnson to throw another kick. Because the next time he threw a leg kick, Coleman has it scouted, catches it, and immediately gets the takedown, which he never looked like doing until Johnson had thrown the kick. So it might have been a good bit of strategy uh, there. Uh, Johnson holds on tight to minimise the distance between the two fighters, so Coleman lands some short right hands. Coleman drives Johnson back towards the cage. He creates some distance and begins releasing those 
unleashing those trademark powerful right hands on the ground. Johnson turns his back and Big John has seen enough, stopping the fight with Mark Coleman, the winner, after just two minutes and 20 seconds. Bob, over to you. Yeah, the commentators were, were praising Johnson while it was stood up, you know, talking about one, and perhaps this was quite right, that Johnson was kind of trying to get a low base so that if... Uh, when the takedown came, he'd be in a better spot to, you know, sprawl and try and stop it. Um, but the leg kicks weren't a great idea. I, mean, I suppose the logic was with the leg kicks, it might force Cohen to take his distance. But it's like, you know, if anyone can, if anyone in this competition is going to shoot for a single leg, it'll be Coleman and you're throwing your leg at him. Um, and yeah, third time round, he saw it coming and took the takedown. Once he got the takedown, it was all over. Um, took a little bit of time. Uh, Johnson didn't defend that badly, but eventually, just so many shots, Johnson turned over and uh, and uh, Big John uh, threw it threw in the towel. Essentially, that was uh, all the end of that one. Yeah, it's what you said earlier. It's just once he gets you down, Coleman has just the size and the power and the, the the punching power. I just don't know how you meant to last. I don't know how you can cope with him on the ground, really. He didn't look like he enjoyed the, the opening standoff there. And as you say, the low base seemed like it was, it, Coleman was more delayed than usual in making that first takedown attempt. Uh, but as soon as they leg kicked coming, he, he took two. And yeah, as you say, on that third one, saw it coming a mile off and got the fight to the ground. And that was it. Simple, really. Fascinating to see what happens, you know, if Coleman's going to lose three on the spin in the next three years. Uh, he wins a couple more before that. Massive and how they beat. Um, you could see him being beaten stood up. You know, as yeah. a guy predominantly a wrestler, you can imagine his stand-up game is not great. But I'm just trying to imagine the guy that has the good enough takedown defense to not be too susceptible to that, but otherwise can outpower and outmaneuver a guy of Coleman's size. And Coleman, like at this stage again, seems like he has everything. Um, but yeah, that'll be interesting to see. But right now, you just watch it and just go, I don't know how you beat him. No, he does look uh, invincible in there, really. He doesn't have any weaknesses. As you say, striking may, may be one, but we haven't come across anyone who can challenge him on that for it before he can get it to the ground. And we've got an interesting slide we'll get to a bit later on uh, what you think about a potential striker taking striker uh, competing in the octagon but we'll uh, save that for now we've got a bit of delay uh, before we get to the next semi-final the announcers spend a lot more time talking about that fight than they normally would do a few too many replays it's a little bit noticeable so you think something's happening finally it's explained that Jerry Bolander is having some problems ahead of his semi-final and will need to be replaced by an alternate but it actually hasn't been determined yet but I have to say uh Jerry Bolander, really, um, potentially injured. We don't know what the injury was. They didn't disclose it. I think I read later it, it was to do with a cut he had on his forehead. But a potentially injured and uh, tired 15 minutes in, Jerry Bolander really had no place going out there against a fresh Tank Abbott, considering the uh, 100-pound weight difference. I mean, if he was injured, keeping him out of that fight would have been absolutely the uh, right decision. It's a shame because I would have quite liked to have seen a, well not a fully fit, but a, you know, competitively fit Bolander against Abbott. Uh, I think we saw the last time Bolander was on the show that he could deal with a guy, um, who had more size. And what we're going to see in the future is how good Bolander is, particularly against guys of similar size. Um, yeah, a little, a little bit disappointed we didn't get to see that. 
No, I agree. Um, so for this next little segment, uh, this was actually cut from Fight Pass. It's not on there. Um, so uh, there's a little bit of discussion that I took from it that I, I thought was quite interesting as, as a little aside halfway through the show. Um, so we are showing highlights from uh, the uh, one minute, 45 second victory uh, that uh, was, uh, Forozo had earlier in the night in his alternate bout. Um, we were also showing replays from Bolander's quarterfinal. Highlighting the cut, which is likely his reason for his inability to continue in the tournament. Uh, then the uh, cameras panning around the arena, looking at fans, and uh, there's a sign there talking about Mike Tyson. So the announcers begin to discuss what chance Mike Tyson would have if he were to enter a UFC tournament. Black Nick says he would be destroyed as he is far too one-dimensional. But Don Wilson points out that as we haven't really seen a legitimate world-class striker in the UFC isn't really fair to write Tyson off. Wilson predicts that in time, strikers could potentially come through and dominate UFC. So, Bob, as a little aside, sort of springing it on you, I'm not sure if this segment would have been in the version of the show you watched. Um, but with that discussion of Tyson, what do you think of how would Mike Tyson of 96 done in a tournament such as this? Mike Tyson v. Mark Coleman in the UFC. How did you see that one going? Uh, who did um, Randy Couture face? Is it Jeremy Tony? Uh, who's the guy that Couture faced, the boxer? Who am I thinking of? Oh, yes. Tony. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Let me have a look. One uh, what's his name? Uh, what show was that? James Tony. There we James go. James Tony, yes, yeah, Is that yes. 2010? God, I think that was like 10, 15 years ago. As we kind of saw with Tony, like, you know, it, the, the, the big the big problem with it is that it's just the massive one-dimensional part of their game. And I think it would depend who he fought. If he fought a guy who didn't have that great takedown offense and perhaps didn't have a great ga- ground game, if he fought someone who was you know, a quote-unquote MMA fighter but was similar, like a kickboxer, um, a kick, if a kickboxer, that's a boxer would be interesting as well. Um, Someone I mean, like Brian Johnson. Yeah, uh, I mean, you fucked against Coleman. Uh, prov- <laughs> pro- pro- provided Coleman picked his spot, um, you know, he wouldn't have a chance. I, I don't, I, I don't see him beating Don Fry. I don't foresee him beating Dan Seven. I don't foresee him beating Kevin, um, Ken Shamrock. I know it all. Like, you know, a, a guy with that kind of knockout power, if you trained him for enough time, you trained him for like three to six months where he, was still a complete boxer, but had the basics down to know what to do. He'd always be in with a shout because he's, he's got the kind of punching power that could knock a guy out with one punch. But equally, there's also the thought that he'll be used to playing, um, playing, he'll be used to, um, boxing with massive gloves on. Um, yeah, I'm sure he'd be okay boxing with MMA gloves on, but I imagine the, the sensation's different and the style's different. You know, he, he might, if anything, you know, if you could absorb or block punches, he might kind of punch himself out if he, you know, I suppose you'd have to absorb them for him to do that. But no, I, I think the logic that he would probably get killed is quite sound. But if they got Tyson in 97, that'd be a massive fight. And it, there'd be a lot, a lot of intrigue on that. Um, but I suspect he'd have lost. 
I, I understand what you're saying with, with Tyson being sort of used to those big boxing gloves, but if you take the padding of those boxing gloves away and replace them with these little light MMA gloves, I mean, the knockout power behind them, the reduced sort of comfort, I, I don't know if that's the right word, but padding certainly. There aren't many people with the knockout record Tyson has in boxing. Um, and if you put that power and take away the sort of padding of those gloves, you add an extra level of power, I think. Uh, I mean, there would be even less men out there who could take those hits. Wearing, yeah, I mean, I, 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 it's the flip side of he's more likely to sustain damage to his hands, but to do that, he's got to land some punches. And so, mm-hmm. you know, where does he land them and does he knock you out? Like, if you could wear it for long enough, you'd probably start to see that advantage come through. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, if if we're talking about his hands starting to hurt... Well, they're only going to start to hurt if he lands a few big punches. Um, so, yeah, interesting question. And, and to an extent, I think it's then just more trying to create some relevance and also trying to kill some time. Um, but yeah, just uh, we will be uh, we'll be seeing some of Tyson in the next couple of months on this show. Let's say that not not on the MMA bit, I should say, <laughs> um, in the uh, in the podcasting in general. We'll be uh, taking a close look at him in a couple of months' time. No, yeah, so. Just an interesting aside, but we are back on Fight Pass now, and it is time for the second semi-final. We have Tank Abbott taking on alternate Scott Ferrozo. Bob with a fighter profile. Tank Abbott enters the fight with a four and two record after his quarter-final victory earlier in the night. He weighs in at two hundred and ninety-eight pounds. He's actually the lighter of the two fighters by some distance, as he kind of made reference to in his his post-match fight. Obviously, earlier he was preparing for either Bolander or. Uh, or Gurgel, uh, two guys who he had about 100 pounds on. Uh, but his actual opponent, the alternate, Scott Ferroza, has a one-on-one record in the UFC, losing to Jerry Bolander at UFC 8, but winning his alternate bout early in the evening. His discipline is this is pit fighting, which Tank called out in his promo at the start of the show for being made up. He weighs in for this a mammoth 350 pounds. He's also a bit shorter, which gives you an idea of the kind of size of uh, Ferroza. Tank Abbott can't have been at a 52-pound weight disadvantage too many times in his career. Uh, on his way to the cage, Ferozo is booed with the crowd firmly pro-Tank Abbott. Big John gets us going. They exchange some big shots in the centre before Abbott able, is able to muscle Ferozo back to the fence. Ferozo lands a flurry of overhand rights to the back of Abbott's head and muscles his way off the fence. And Both men begin swinging wildly again. The slugfest results in another clinch, with Ferozo t- tossing Abbott down, but Tank popping right up and grabbing a waist lock. Abbott drives Ferozo to the fence again. All that happened in the first 47 seconds. Uh, Tank lands a few right hands to the head and busts Ferozo open above the right high. Ferozo then yells, fuck you, which is actually bleeped out on Fight Pass, but it didn't do a very good job of it. Uh, Don Fry is screaming advice to Ferozo. Ferozo then turns to face Tank Abbott and lands a succession of hard knees to the body in the clinch, which seems to win Tank badly. They break off and again begin exchanging wild punches, as becomes sort of the pattern of this fight. Ferozo lands a huge uppercut, followed by a right hook. He drives Tank Abbott back against the cage. They're in the clinch again, and Ferozo lands another uppercut, followed by more knees to the body. This is pretty wild. Uh, Big John steps into Ferozo's cut checked, but the doctor says he is good to continue, and the action quickly resumes. 
Immediately again, they begin to exchange wild punches. Ferreza heats the right hand, he backs off, but then he begins dancing a little bit, which for a man of his physique, he had some good nimble dance moves, it must be said. Tank drives the clinch up against the cage again, but Ferrozo continues to land knees to his gut. Abbott looks really tired here. He isn't really throwing anything at this stage. He's just driving and pushing Ferrozo back into the cage and absorbing damage. Ferrozo continues to land the occasional knee and rabbit punch to the back of the head. The action follows this pattern for a while. Abbott driving Ferrozo into the uh, against the cage, not really throwing. Ferrozo doing all of the striking and Tank looking very tired. Big John eventually breaks him up. He restarts the fight after around 12 and a half minutes. They begin by exchanging wild punches yet again, and Ferrozo lands another huge uppercut that snaps Tank's head back. Abbott is able to stand strong. He forces the clinch against the fence yet again, and the action stays there as we reach a 15-minute time limit. We head straight into the three-minute overtime period. The crowd had completely switched their pre-fight allegiances here. They're firmly frying for Ferrozo, who gets the crowd pumped up. After a tentative opening, the overtime begins and follows the exact same pattern as the main fight, with an exchange of punches uh, to open the action before Tank is able to get into the clinch and drive it towards the fence. He holds Ferrozo here. Ferrozo lands knees to the body and a few rabbit punches. Uh, as Tank is driving the clinch to the fence, the crowd begins to boo loudly. With less than 25 seconds to go, Big John resets the action. Uh, they finish bringing the fight full circle with two men coming to the middle of the octagon and trading wild punches. Neither of them go down, and the, with that, the fight is over, and we are ha- headed to the judges, who unanimously award the contest to Ferrozo. Ferrozo cuts a pre-match, a, a pre-fight promo that says he wanted to be the man who whipped Tank Abbott, and now he is, and he dedicates the win to Dom Fry, saying he owes everything to him. Bob, thoughts on all of that? Whew, where to begin? Um, I mean, yeah, it's a, a bizarre fight in that they weren't on their feet out from the side of the cage for all that long. But when they were, it was a wild-ass fight. Like, these were just two big, big dudes just throwing, just throwing bombs a lot of the time. Um, and, yeah, it was pretty clear that Tank was completely gassed because he basically just got it by the corner, um, you got it by in the cage, uh, and just kind of held him there. And, you know, Ferozo couldn't get out, but Ferozo was clearly on top, and you were kind of looking at Tank and going, what's the plan here? Like, you know, you're clearly behind in a match that's being decided by judges, just holding on to the cage. Ferozo couldn't get out, but to an extent he didn't want to, I don't think. Um... I was quite surprised that John didn't get them off the cage a lot earlier, though. I kind of thought it was about three or four minutes too late, particularly as it wasn't like it was on the ground and people were working. It was just that Tank was on the cage, clinging to life. Um, but equally, you could only have a go at John so much, given that when he did eventually separate them, they basically got back there within about 60 seconds. And when we got the restart, we got back to the cage as well. Um, yeah, you can see why they stopped people being able to hang on to the cage because it was a bit self-defeating. Yeah, no, completely agreed. Uh, it was it was such a strange fight. You were expecting something more out of Tank Abbott the whole time. As you say, he must have, you just felt he must have had a plan and it was quite notable. He was controlling the clinch, holding on to the cage and then there's that 
just after <laughs> Ferozo screams "fuck you" at Tank Abbott, uh, Dom Fry appears in the background, lends some words of wisdom to Scott Ferozo, who then turns and begins landing those knees to the gut, and that was it. Tank was just completely gassed. He just kept absorbing these knees and absorbing these knees. He just didn't do anything. Um, you know, Ferozo was absolutely the right winner. Um, fair play to him. Uh, he said, uh, he said they, the, the announcers made a big deal of it pre-fight, how he had said it was his destiny that even though he was an alternate, he was going to be put into this tournament and he was going to win the whole thing. And I mean, he got half of it right. He, he got put in the tournament and he won his semi-final. Um, I don't think he'd have had a chance against Mark Coleman. Uh, but I mean, it was a pretty good showing from Ferozo, who uh, didn't have any issues with expending more energy after the fight, doing a little dance for the crowd after he had won, and he was he was pretty full of it, really. And I, I was pretty chuffed for the guy. I, I, he came off as really likable here. His his post-fight promo was was good. Um, he seemed like a fun, likable guy. Um, he just seemed like a regular guy, really. Who who. Uh, he got the job done. Um, I, 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 think, I, I think when whoever interviewed him asked him, how's the final going to go? And he simply said, same way. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm kind of thinking, yeah, yeah. there's no fucking way Mark Culver's going to be blowing and clinging onto the cage. Um, definitely. You know, he, he reminded me so much. I, I can't remember the character's name, but he looked like and sounded like the guy who wants to be the ultimate fighting champion in Friends. Did you have you seen? Have you watched Friends? Oh yeah, um, Monica's no, he, boyfriend. Yeah, the, I know. He's, the, he's not the that rich guy. fat. Yeah, he wasn't that fat, was he? No, no, no. But he had the same face, and their voice is identical. It didn't strike me until until he spoke. Until Ferozo spoke, I hadn't thought of it. And when he spoke, because the promo was just of his head, and you could just it was just his face and him speaking. The the the. the the um, comparison was striking. I thought and definitely, definitely not in a in body shape. Uh, that, that, that show actually airs May of next year. We might end up doing that as a little bonus part of the uh, <laughs> of the May show. That episode. Um, yeah, I mean, let's have a look. Who's the actor? Let's find out. Uh, cast. They, they have a very, very, very similar voice. It's a guy, um, guy called Pete Becker. Um, yeah, they might have a similar voice. Um, I, 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 I thought they had a similar face and a similar voice. But, uh, um, maybe just me. Beck is about 150 pounds lighter. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so I, yeah, kind of. We'll do that show next year. That'll be fun. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't think, I don't think many people would share that view necessarily. They've got similar features, just me, perhaps. Just me. But, Oh yeah, but right. it's same way on the uh, on the yeah. Well, well it, it didn't go <laughs> the same way for very different reasons. But um, you have, you have to love the confidence, though. You, you've got to back yourself, uh, uh, and uh, he backed himself and beat Tank Abbott. So fair play to the guy. But as you said in the sort of media section and with the results earlier, Ferozo uh, goes backstage after bigging himself up, and he collapses. It's thought to be of dehydration, so clearly had a lot taken out of him with that 18-minute victory. Um, so in the meanwhile, uh, this, just for, for, for reference, wasn't actually on Fight Pass for some reason. This this next little segment was cut as well. So we get an interview with Don Fry and Ken Shamrock, and they're both plugging the Ultimate Ultimate pay-per-view coming up in December. Fry says 
He hopes to be able to rematch Mark Coleman and avenge his loss from UFC 10. While Ken Shamrock says that if he happens to face Ken, uh, sorry, Tech Abbott in the tournament, he will crush him. Bob, did you get the interviews in the version of the show you watched? Yes, um, shout was very good. Uh, wearing a, oh god, how can you say it's like, um, a, a just, just a pinstripe waistcoat. That was it. That was all he was wearing on top of his body. Um, which he just about pulled off. Uh, but yeah, shout because it was really good, you know, basically setting up, you know, what happened, you know, basically disappointed about last time. He basically said that, you know, um, I should have readjusted my my um, my kind of tactics when it when we it was pretty clear that seven wasn't going to attack. I should have done, which is fair play to him. And yeah, he just previewed the next show and talked about Abbott and talked about um, the ultimate tournament, how he wants to go and win it. Um, spoke about Coleman as well. Just a really good promo. Shamrock's really smooth in this setting, um, and it's it's no surprise that he's one of the biggest stars they've got. And we talk about star power desperately needed for the next one. Okay, so back on Fight Pass, uh, on the version of the show I watched, it is announced that Scott Ferrozo has pulled out of the final. He is unable to compete, and Roberto Trevon, the uh, winner of the second alter- alternate bout early in the evening, is in. So we get shown highlights of Traven's victory in his earlier alternate bout, which he won via submission in just 1 minute and 33 seconds. He had a back mount, raid down with strikes to the back of the opponent's head, who swiftly tapped out. We then get promo with highlights of Mark Coleman's route to the final. We then cut backstage and we see Mark Coleman preparing for the final. They seem to be stalling now. Um, and then they cut to Tank Abbott back out in the arena, interacting fans and begin assessing his performance again. They go back to talking about that semi-final. There's a bit of a delay, a bit of stalling. And then it is announced that Roberto Traven is out with a broken hand and cannot compete and we are told the officials are deciding what to do for the final. Then it is declared that Mark Coleman is the winner. He comes out to the octagon, and he is declared the winner of the tournament by default. The crowd boo. Blacknick interviews him, asking about the, his progress and the upcoming Ultimate Ultimate. Coleman says he is going to keep getting better. He wants to be known as the best ever in this sport. There's not a lot whole going on with this promo, really. Um... Is very much on the spot, stalling. They didn't have a lot to ask him, and he didn't have a lot to say. He's asked about Ken Shamrock, and Coleman says that he's a great fighter, and if he wants to get in there with him, let's do it. This is really dragging. Nonetheless, the outcome is that Mark Coleman is declared the winner of UFC 11. He is the UFC 11 champion, and that brings to a close to our show. It seemed like Coleman had an exhibition fight against someone who on Fight Pass goes unnamed, but you can see him in the octagon as we fade out. They do a pan shot of the arena, and you can see uh, Mark Coleman in there, about to have an exhibition fight, about to lock up with an unnamed opponent. Uh, Bob, thoughts on all of that, the lack of climax to the show? Yeah, yeah. You, you could see, uh, when you, you said it seemed like they were stalling. It seemed like they were stalling because they were stalling. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, they just didn't have... You know, you could tell they were scrambling for something, um, and I'm guessing that all things were being considered. Um, but I think the fact they asked Tank Abbott probably tells you exactly what they thought of their other options or what their other options were. Um, Traven was the only other guy they had, and who knows, maybe he did have a hand injury, maybe he just didn't want to get pummeled by Coleman. 
Um, but yeah, um, I, I think also, you know, the, the big question, why not just show the, the prelims or the alternates in their entirety while you're waiting for all this? Like one thing they, you know, it's easier when you've just got fight, fight, fight rather than tournament format because it's a, it, it's a bit less, a bit more predictable. When you've got the tournament format, and we spoke last time, they, they need something in the middle anyway. They needed a break regardless. Even if Ferozo had have been ready, he would have needed, what, half an hour? Would that have been fair? 20 minutes, half an hour just to come down, kind of rehydrate himself and get back out there? Um, so they would have needed stuff to fill this anyway, um, and they didn't have it. Um, all a bit weird. I think at the end it was the right decision. Uh, it would have been very, very strange if Tank Abbott had lost the semi-final, but won the final effectively. Because if they'd have done the final, it might well, well, they could have done an exhibition, I suppose. But it would have looked even more weird had they have had Mark Coleman, the winner of the tournament, who lost to a guy who also lost. That would look very, very strange. Um, yeah, I think in the end it was the least worst decision they could have made. Um, as in they didn't really have a good one this was the best way out all a bit weird they need to get better at time management and they need to get better at being more flexible with their presentation this was a very very extreme example of that uh, as for the exhibition with Kevin Randall what I read it wasn't strictly MMA uh, someone said it was more something akin to pro wrestling in terms of suplexes and that kind of thing and throws um, and apparently some people were chatting for the NWO to run out Um which tells you what, uh, what, what the crowd, the crowd were really good all night actually, uh, a very well informed crowd, um, and a very kind of pro wrestling type crowd too. Um, but yeah, a bit of an ugly end, um, to an ugly show in some ways, ugly is in very, very uneven. Um, but yeah, I think all things considered, I don't think we can blame them too much. No, like you say, you, it's not, it's not even really their fault. Like, all you ask it, if this happened and they hadn't had any alternates, then of course it's entirely their fault. That's terrible. But they had two. Like, and I mean, I know all it takes is three guys to go down, but to have three guys who win their fights all get injured or unable to compete in one night, maybe on paper does seem unlikely, but yeah, it happened. And it, the potential for it to happen was was always there and, and this was the night where it did. Um it's just a shame really. It was frustrating. Um we talk about the lack of stars maybe hurting the buy rate in the last UFC show. Um Mark Coleman who should have become a major star off the back of that UFC 10 performance. This doesn't help him. Uh, he's the UFC 11 champion, but it wasn't a star-making performance. He had he had two quick matches, and not for his own doing. I mean, he just ran through both those guys. Um, but this isn't going to add sort of any weight to his stock in terms of making him a marketable UFC star. Um, it doesn't help his star power at all, even though it helps his uh, his MMA record, of course, with, with him now being five and zero and back-to-back tournament champion. Um, it's just a shame. Uh, really, but uh, yeah. So Bob, uh, well, we kind of just touched on it, really. But rather than just the ending, the overall thoughts on the show and a score rating out of ten for UFC eleven. Yeah, um, I don't want to say a disappointment necessarily. It wasn't a horrible show, um, but I think if you bought the pay per view, and, and this is kind of really how you should rate it. If I bought the pay per view for twenty bucks, whatever it was, how would I have felt at the end? I'd have probably felt a bit disappointed. Um, you know, the early stuff was okay. 
Um, but there was, there was no great fight on this show. You know, the, the one with Kurgel and, um, and Bolander was quite a good fight technically. Um, and the Abbott Ferozo had just enough of them throwing bombs where it made sense. But, you know, have a, a lukewarm undercard without a, without a finale. Um, I'll give it a five. Yeah, I, I think a five's fair. I'll, I, I, I'll go with five as well. There's nothing terrible in this show. There's either very short fights, two, two long fights that went the distance that definitely weren't stellar. They weren't terrible. They, they were, they were right in the middle, really. Um, and the show was right in the middle. It was harsh. It would be hard to be too hard on it for the ending as sort of, it's not really anyone's fault. It's just a combination of everything that went wrong could have. And, uh, they did have some contingency there, but it wasn't enough. Um, I don't know. I did enjoy parts of Abbott's, Abbott and Ferozo. So much of that was just spent in a clinch against the cage. Um, Coleman, again, another great performance, another great night for him. Uh, but going to be somewhat overshadowed, as I touched on, really, by an unfortunate ending to the show. It hasn't helped his stock as a, as a star, necessarily, uh, this. So I think a five's fair, right down the middle. Uh, so we agree on that. So that wraps up. Uh, are, we doing, are we doing votes? Uh, not votes for performance and fight, uh, fight and performance of the night? Oh, God, yeah, of course. I forgot about that. So, uh, Bob, um, who would you give as your fighter of the night for UFC 11? And uh, so what, what do we do, fight and performer? Yeah, be those two. Uh, uh, fight of the night and performer of the night. Um, uh, I'll give, for, for the second show he's on in a row, I'll give Jerry Bolander an honourable mention in performer of the night. Uh, because, as I say, when you contextualise that fight, I don't think necessarily people thought he was going to get killed because Bolander's clearly quite skilled, but for a guy that's 21 years old has only really been doing it for two years, I think if you were smart to everything and you knew what you were talking about, you would have said Gurgel would have beaten him quite comfortably. So the fact that, you know, he won by a decision, but he, you know, clearly dominated a guy who was a BJJ champion, um, you could nominate for him, but I, again, I don't think we can really ignore Mark Coleman in this fight, who continues to look fantastic. Um, yeah, Mark Coleman. Yeah, agreed. It has to be Coleman, really. He just he runs through guys, and he, I mean, his Julian Sanchez, we we don't know a whole lot about, but clearly wasn't a uh, a fighter anywhere near on his level. But we know Brian Johnston is uh, is no mug, really. Uh, <laughs> To put it bluntly, Brian Johnson's a good fighter. He's got a being like an 11-0 kickboxer record. He's looked good. He's won fights in the UFC before. And Mark Coleman, as soon as he gets into the ground, Brian Johnston, who's three inches taller, he is the lighter man, just uh, taken apart on the ground by Mark Coleman. Uh, and as we've said multiple times on this show, I'm not sure how anyone really uh, would could possibly cope with this Mark Coleman. I don't know what happens within the next couple of years to see his record change so drastically, but it's hard to imagine this fighter losing three fights in a row ever, <laughs> really. So it has to be Mark Carmen for the performer of the night. With an honourable mention from me for Scott Ferrozo, just for his uh, coming in as an alternate and uh, being able to beat Tank Abbott, which is which is very impressive, and uh, putting on a show with his dance moves after, even though he may have been dehydrated and did collapse as soon as he went backstage. It may have not been the uh, smartest decision, but nonetheless made for good viewing. So, Bob, your fight of the night? Um, an honourable mention to Abbott and Ferozo that when it wasn't against the cage was 
compelling in a completely wild and crazy way, but there was too much of too much stalling, too much stuff against the fence. Uh, I'll give Belander this one. I'll give Belander and Gurziel. Um, as I say, you might look at a 15-minute fight and predominantly one on the ground and think, God, that's boring, and there have been fights like that that we've covered, probably not that length, but certainly stuff where it's got on the ground, it's been really flat. Um, they had a compelling fight, and Bolander, fair play to him, got the job done. Uh, I give it to Bolander and Gurgel. Yeah, uh, yeah, two for two on that one. I give it to Gurgel and Bolander. In the, I said it earlier, but whether it came or not, there was always this sense, knowing the background of Gurgel and see, having seen Bolander before, that while it was on the ground, you felt like something could happen out of nowhere at any point. And even though it was a 15 minute minute fight fought predominantly on the ground uh, you always felt like there was this tension I found watching it where you were watching it so closely looking for little intricacies looking for a potential opening for either fighter and you felt like something was going to happen it never came uh, which in itself may have been a slight disappointment but it was slim pickings really in the fight of the night section uh, there was nothing excellent on this show but yeah for me I agree with uh, Bolander and Gurziel getting the fight of the night. So that does, in fact, bring a close to our review of UFC 11. Uh, Bob, before we uh, wrap up the show, uh, just wondered if you would like to discuss uh, a recent pro wrestling uh, pro wrestler making his UFC debut here in 2016 uh, with the recent appearance of CM Punk at UFC 203. So we're going to talk about Thoughts on the fight itself and your thoughts around CM Punk actually making it into the UFC in, in 2016 and competing in the Octagon for the UFC, sanctioned by an athletic com- athletic commission, all of the above. Thoughts on CM Punk? When, uh, well, we, we, as we know, we've now shelved the modern-day UFC predictions, generally because we're so bad at them uh, from the show. <laughs> Um, but when Tom tweeted me and you last week, what were the predictions from you two? Do you remember? I think Tom may have been Mickey Gould, but I went with CM Punk. Right. Um, very, very misinformedly. My, I, I will defend myself in that. Uh, the reasons for that is that, uh, I don't know. I mean, I just <laughs> thought, well, basically my logic, and it, it, it doesn't make sense, really. But my logic was that CM Punk has now had the best part of two years training with top, top guys and everything you've heard about him is progress and everything you've heard about him is hardest worker as hard, works hard, as hard as anyone there, all of this. And I thought with two years of that behind him, is Mickey Gall actually any good? That was, the, the whole basis wasn't, I thought CM Punk was particularly great mixed martial artist. It was more about Mickey Gall they brought in. He'd had two amateur fights and then in his UFC fight, that that was probably as much as a, of a sham as uh, CM Punk in that, I think it was Michael Johnson, Michael, was it Michael Jackson? Mike Jackson? Yeah, yeah Mike the guy Jackson. Called, who, who himself, I think was O&O and was actually a journalist who was covering the show that he himself was fighting on. Who And I, I thought Mickey Gall won that in the first round, yeah, but I just... The entire basis of that prediction was that I didn't know that Mickey Gall... And he probably isn't. I mean, he may... This, this may be accurate, but I didn't know that he was a fighter of any real pedigree and CM Punk may have had enough 
with two years of top-level training behind him to beat a guy of that calibre. Can, I, I, present, can I present a conspiracy theory? Of course. What, what, what if... What if this has all been about getting Mickey Gall over? I think it has been. No, no but what if, that, what if that was the point? The thought was, we think we've got a star in the making in Mickey Gall. Let's set up Punk for him to kill, and the extra interest will give Gall name ver- na- notoriety that will enable him to be more of a star more quickly. He's calling out Sage Northcutt already. I, I uh, mean, if they do Mickey Gall v Sage Northcutt and Mickey Gall wins, he's probably going to be one of my top three favourite fighters in the promotion. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, it, uh, whether that's the plan or not, that's that's how it's come out. I mean, there's no legs, really. There's no curiosity factor in CM Punk having another fight within the UFC, really. Um, I know he wants his journey to continue, but if he if he does really want to be a mixed martial artist, then maybe there, there, are, there are ways to do it that aren't on a pay-per-view card with uh, by, uh, half a million downside guarantee, uh, regardless of the outcome uh, in the UFC. I mean, he, he can go to the amateurs, he can go to regionals, he, he can do whatever. If if he if he wants to fight, he has options. UFC isn't the be all and end all for mixed martial arts. He's he's got options. Um, I, I, I think the response to the fight has been very kind on Punk. Very. I've seen kind. some terrible the, stuff. Oh, that. there has been, but the prevailing viewpoint that I see in a lot of cases is you know fair play to the guy, respect for him for getting in the. I thought it was fucking embarrassing. I agree. I mean, I mean, the, the bell rang, Punk stormed out. I mean, the, the whole thing actually reminded me of something we would have seen from 1996. Agreed, Punk, yeah. Full of adrenaline, full of hype, stormed out the gate, went towards Gaul, threw a punch. Gaul saw it coming, shot for the takedown, took it. And, and the reason I say that, you know, I think Punk's been let a bit, bit, kind of got off lightly is that some people said, well, he, he defended the rear naked choke well. It's like, what so survival instinct kicked in and he showed for 10 seconds some mediocre defense is that what we're giving punk punk had two years of solid mma training with one of the best camps in the country and i think some of our respect for him getting in the cage the guy got paid half a million dollars to get his ass kicked for three minutes i think a lot of people would have done that for two years training i, uh, I absolutely you know if you, if you I, I half a million I would absolutely fight someone in the I mean, UFC. I mean, don't get me wrong, right? It is dangerous getting in the octagon, but it's dangerous getting in a wrestling ring in, a, in another way. And Punk's been doing that for you know, a decade and a half. I, I, another guy could have done some serious, serious damage. Another guy could have embarrassed him in a whole other way. Um, I thought it was dreadful. I, I, I was, you know, it was like, you know, I don't have respect for him for getting in the cage. Um, you know, I you know I think the buy rate shows that there was a lot of interest. Uh, and UFC are in a conundrum now because they let him go. Bellator are definitely going to pick him up. Um, and Bellator, Bellator will give him squash matches. I don't doubt that. I think he goes to Bellator. They'll give him a guy with six months training. Someone who's competent. In, I mean, there might be an issue with regards because Punky's what sanctioned as a pro. I think. Um, so there might be issues regarding athletic commissions. But if they let him go, Bellator will pick him up and he will draw a TV rating. But I don't know what you do if you're USC now. If, if you don't want to let him go to Bellator, unless you can sign some sort of non-compete, because my understanding is USC fighters can only be kept on the contract if they've got extra fights in, in the can. 
um, or extra fights to do. I don't know what you do, but I took the whole thing was embarrassing. Like, you know, like I, I'd have much rather he'd gone, you know, and just been knocked out one punch because that can happen. Like this proved definitively beyond doubt that he is just, you know, shit. I mean, for, for two well, years, like, you know, you, 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 I didn't do it wrong. MMA is incredibly complex and guys who have been doing sport for years and years and years get in the cage and they still get beat. And you can see similar mismatches between guys that are a lot more experienced. But, you know, I, I kind of, I watched that fight and thought, who the fuck let him in? Like that was my, you know, I, you, know, you, you can't blame Bunk Punk for taking the opportunity. Someone offered you a hell of a lot of money to enact your dream on the biggest stage of the world and offered you quite favourable terms. A fight against a one and zero guy, fair fucks, right? But what athletic, well, we know what athletic commission, but who sanctioned this? Did who you see thought- the the reasoning behind it as well that they gave? Because they there's there's the thing that you had they had to have at least the, the was it five, five amateur fights or fights, three. Five amateur fights with a winning record. And they um, sanctioned it because of Brock Lesnar, right? They they sanctioned it because they said he had a wrestling background, the same as other UFC fighters, such as Brock Lesnar. Oh, that was the know. reason that in 2016, an athletic commission allowed CM Punk to that's, fight in the UFC. That is so shady. That That's like... That's... that's Blatantly bollocks. That, that, there's no way anyone that, you know, it, with their right mind, any state athletic commission could possibly sanction that under normal circumstances. USC have pulled the fast one, or they've pushed, you know, they they they've slipped someone some money here, or something like that. Someone has not done their job properly for that to have happened. Um, well, <laughs> it's got pro wrestling background. Fucking hell. I mean, the thing is, like, he's not, you know, if you went to the WWE, there's at least four or five guys that have more of a case for going into the MMA than, than CM Punk does. Jack Swagger's one, Dolph Ziggler's another, well, basically anyone with an amateur wrestling background. Chad Gable. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah I, I, I just thought the whole thing was, uh, yeah, I, I don't feel sorry for him necessarily, but I just thought the reaction, and don't know, a lot of people are like me, don't get me wrong, but this whole, oh, respect for getting in the case, fuck that. The guy got paid 500 grand, you know, lucky Gaul didn't do some lasting damage because I think another guy could have done. The best article I've seen covering up the, I, I share all of your opinions really, uh, on, on the fight, uh, Subsequently, and uh, the best writing I've seen on it since is by Jonathan Snowden, who is J E Snowden on Twitter. It's his pinned tweet. It's called "Why Punk's UFC Dream Deserved to Die." I recommend that article. I think I've read that as well. Was that Bleacher Report? To anyone listening, this yeah, he's Bleacher Report writer. Yeah, it is is genuinely uh, the most articulate case for how much of a sham this this thing was. and he, he quite rightly points out that whether he, CM Punk made the UFC money is is completely beside the point, really. Um, it's like... It's not beside his, the point. Well, that's, his, that's his, example was, his example was, is it a sport or not? Should UFC also book Kim Kardashian? <laughs> like, that, that, that was basically the comparison he used. Is, is it a sport? If it is a sport, then he shouldn't, he shouldn't be anywhere near it. Because if not, you might as well get rid of all these fighters and bring in these celebrities that are going to get you buy rates. And that's, that's, that's how you proceed. Just kill the sport off. No one really cares about the fighting. It's only about watching these celebrities come in. 
Um, and it, it is an interesting conundrum for the UFC now, like we saw before with Kimbo Slice, who's a fantastic ratings draw. He only had two fights under the UFC before he was cut because, quite frankly, they didn't consider him up to the level they required from their UFC fighter. And he, they have to cut him, don't they? They have to cut Punk. But I mean, the, there's a lot of stuff about it's, it's, it's the new owners. You don't know how they're going to operate. They, well, yeah, they I mean, might see this. <laughs> Do we know how many buys this paper you did? Oh, uh, well, I think the estimates um, near a five hundred thousand, four hundred ninety off thousand, I think. And and Dave Meltzer reckoned that Punk added somewhere between a hundred thousand and two hundred thousand buys. Which, funnily enough, he's probably far more buys than he ever added to any WWE show. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which which is slightly weird. Uh, as in Punk is, Punk is without question, I mean, I don't know, if he came back, I suppose Punk for a one-off fight would be a good draw. But it was the intrigue factor. It was a guy that a lot of people had an opinion on. Um, he, you know, he'd been around long enough in WWE with, he had some name, name notoriety. You go back to 2011, Punk was making legitimate mainstream headlines that summer, you know, a few times. Um, but yeah, I don't know what they do. Uh, I think they should cut him because I, how, how do you pitch his next fight? And that was a massacre. And there's no, you know, if, if you're bringing in Mickey Gall and giving Mickey Gall special treatment to have a 1-0 and fight in a fight that otherwise would have no place on a USC card in an 0-0 fight, and Punk's nowhere near Mickey Gall's level, what fucking fight are you going to have to put on to have Punk have a competitive fight? And don't get it wrong, Bellator are going to do it, but to an extent I think Bellator are going to present it like that, um, if they can, if the State Athletic Commission will let them do it. Um, I just think USC have got to wear it. You've earned your money, you've earned, you know, there's, there'll be some intrigue, it'll be Punk on telly, but I, I, you know, in a funny kind of way, if I'm USC, you know, if I'm USC, I am far more worried by Chell Sonnen being in Bellator than I am CM Punk having a few fights there. Even though Punk would probably draw more ratings than Chell Sonnen would. USC need to be concerned about legitimacy where Bellator are concerned, not by freak show fights. And if Bellator want to sign Punk, more power to him. Because it might be the case that one, well, what it might be the case that they serve him someone so bad. Because if anything, like, if you're Bellator, the best case scenario is Punk just getting steamrolled again. Because if they have like a bad fight and we just see really how bad Punk is against someone that's not very good, that could do even more damage. If I'm USC, you've got to cut them, I think. That's just my opinion of it. The whole thing's been a bit of a sham. It's been a bit embarrassing. The idea that Punk can get clear because of Brock Lesnar is just fucking laughable. It's like, it's one of those arguments that is so nonsensical. I'm surprised anyone went with it. Um, and yeah, the whole thing's been a bit embarrassing. Punk got Punk got paid his money, you know, whatever. Um, but you know, I, I don't think I don't think the sport of MMA is better off as a result of this. No, it's definitely damaged the sport. It's damaged the reputation of the UFC. Uh, it's but at the end of the day, everyone got paid. So is 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 that what they're in business for? I mean, the new ownership of the UFC that took out. Huge loans required to make big profits to pay those loans off every year. Are they going to see them extra two hundred thousand buys and think we've got to get him back? He's got he's got to go again. Like it wouldn't surprise it. Any any sane person thinking logically cut CM Punk, but in a in a in a business, do do you really let that money walk out the door? 
I think it's less. You... About, I, like, I think it's less about the money walking out the door. It's more about the money walking out the door and walking to your nearest com- competition. Mm. Uh, I, I feel like if UFC could kind of negotiate Punk into retirement or into amateur stuff, they might be much more inclined to go for it. But the big issue is Bellator. They're just sitting there. But who knows? Uh, yeah, just. A really, but I, I like when we said predictions. I said I think Gaul's going to kill him. Uh, I didn't think I didn't think it'd be quite that one sided. I thought Gaul might be a bit nervous and, and fair fucks. Like it all talks been about punk. Gaul did a very very professional job, and one in the sense that he could look a bit more starstruck and a bit more awestruck. And I think you know, Punk said you know never never think you don't belong on a card, which is ironic coming from Punk. Um, given that he didn't belong on this card. But, <laughs> you know, I, I ne- never think that, but he didn't look like it. And, yeah, like, that's the thing. Like we, we might look back at this in two or three years' time with Mickey Gore as a significant name in the UFC and go, they got one right. And it wouldn't shock me if it, if it turned out that, say, a year into his progress, the guys that were training him were speaking to Dana White and said, this guy's not picking it up. Because uh, you look at the training stuff and he looks horrendous. Like some of those th- punches and kick look really, really bad. And it might wasn't a surprise if they said, look, you got one fight. Don't, you know, don't try and make this a competitive fight because it's going to look horrendous. Try and get, try and make somebody. That, that, t- like if we're ever looking for an explanation as to how this all makes sense and in a bigger picture how it all made sense, I think that's the only logical reasoning. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. Uh, whole thing's been a bit of a farce, but any any other topics to cover before? I was going to say, do you remember when this show was only going to take an hour? I think we said that about two hours and fifteen minutes ago. We've had yeah, some technical yeah. issues. Um, we will edit some of them out. Some of them are just going to stay in. Chris's mic was a little bit shaky in the middle, um, but hopefully it's not been too bad. Uh, yeah, I'll get my patron plug in as well now, and then I'll hand over sure. to Chris to finish up the show. Yeah, so a bit in, in a little bit more detail now in the show. Uh, yeah, essentially I set up Patreon because one, you know, I thought my costs for this are getting slightly bigger, not prohibitively. I'm not going to do a Chris Jericho on you. I'm not going to say without adverts, this show can't run. Run the podcast is not prohibitively expensive. But the costs are growing slightly. And plus, as I get into year four of this, my cumulative costs are now quite big. So I thought maybe there's a few people out there that listen to all the shows and might think, you know what, I'll chuck in a few bucks. If you don't, more power to you. I've got no problem at all if you listen to all these shows and don't throw me any money. If I was in your position, I probably wouldn't. But if you're kind of person that wants to chuck us a few bucks to say thank you, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash wrestling20yrs. Uh, as a kind of incentive, say, uh, basically we're offering what we're calling early access to shows. I'll explain that in a little bit of detail here. It's all fully on the page. Uh, we, we release shows in bulk at the end of the month, but we take them throughout the month and a lot of them get edited. Yeah, this one should be edited in the next 24 hours. And also in our world, this would have been edited in 24 hours and it would have just sat there for a week and a half while we take the other shows and they would have gone online with all the other shows. So what we're saying is these shows, some of these shows are ready before they go out. If you're a patron, subscriber, donator, donor, whatever whatever I'm going to decide on calling you, you can get early access to these shows. That's about it. If we get in, you know, I don't want to say if we get enough people. It's not about the money with the bonus content. It's more just about the people. You know, doing a bonus content for six people seems a little bit excessive. And also in the sense that 
I don't have much capacity for extra shows right now anyway. But if we get more people, we'll look at extra bonus content, all that kind of stuff. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash wrestling 20YRS is where you can find out more information if you'd like to donate. If not, that's absolutely fine. You can find me on Twitter at Bobby Bamba and I'll leave Chris to do the rest of the plugs. Thank you very much, Bob. Yeah, so this has been Volume 4 of the September 1996 edition of the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. This has been the MMA 20 Years Ago podcast with all your UFC action. If you go back to Volume 1 of this month's show, you will find your WCW episode reviewing Full Ball. Volume 2 is your WWF coverage looking at In Your House 10. And Volume 3 is, of course, all your ECW action. This has been Volume 4, the MMA show. Hope you've enjoyed uh, looking back at UFC 11. And, uh, yeah, I, I've i been uh, your host, uh, Chris White. You can find myself on Twitter at ChrisWhite14. Bob's plugged his own Twitter, so that's nice and easy. So thank you very much for listening, and until next time, goodbye. <laughs>